welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. Welcome to Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. With me today is Mariko McDonough-Meyer, the recently named Chief Strategy Officer of one of the firms building electricity storage in front of and behind the meter across North America, Convergent. Welcome, Mariko. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So let's start with you. I mean, you've got a really interesting backstory. We just had a little bit of a chat beforehand. You know, Mariko tipped me off, but then I saw on your LinkedIn four languages. Like I've studied eight and I'm never become oh, you fluent. Have me beat. No, no, no. I've studied eight. <laughs> <laughs> so tell you know, Japanese. I, I so tell me about you know a bit about you. Tell our audience a bit about you know where you came from, where you're born, why you've got an interesting name, those types of things. Sure. Um, you've, got, you've got an interesting backstory. Well, thanks. So yeah, so my first name is Mariko, which is a Japanese name. My mom is Japanese. Uh, My father is British, uh, but Irish by blood, hence by maiden name McDonough. And then I married an American guy with a German name, but I can't claim any um, affiliation with Germany. And um, I was born in Singapore, which we were just speaking about because you spent some time working there. And uh, what else? Oh, you mentioned the four languages. So I spent most of my elementary school years living in Peru, which is why I speak Spanish and then Japanese, obviously, because of my mom. And French is a little rusty, but was my uh, college language of choice. And I had a very good time studying abroad in Paris, studying in air quotes, of course, as is always the case with studying abroad in college. So that's my my personal background. I, I now live in Boston with uh, my husband and my two daughters and my three-legged cat, who you saw just a moment ago. So that's, that's my personal story. And uh, we were talking about Convergent, which I just joined in August, and I'm thrilled to be at Convergent and thrilled to be here talking with you today. Cool. Yeah, no, the, um, the, the Peruvian thing was interesting because, you know, you did do some volunteer work there as well, which I thought was interesting. You know, maybe you, you want to just touch on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started my career at McKinsey and Company, a consultancy. And um, one of the great things that McKinsey makes available is you can take some time off and do what they call externships, which are sort of extended internships with other organizations. And uh, I worked with an organization called TechnoServe, which is an organization that does a lot of consulting for nonprofits and development organizations. And so I had the opportunity to go back to Lima and live there for a few months working with a nonprofit organization focused on uh, base of the pyramid economic inclusion. So working with really low income communities and getting them more included in the economic growth of the Peruvian economy. Yeah, my my Latin American experience was a year in Sao Paulo, working for a major tech uh, organization, not nearly as uplifting as your experience. (laughs) (laughs) Latin America is always fun, no matter what you're doing there. Uh, and, And I did spend most of my time trying to learn Brazilian Portuguese, which is one of the two languages I was briefly conversant in before it became so rusty that I no longer claim it. Um, 
But then, you know, uh, after McKinsey, you know, uh, and, you know, to be clear for our audience, those types of externships typically are not granted to just anybody. You know, you, you kind of have to actually be a performer to get those kind of opportunities. That was certainly the way it was in my firm. And so, <laughs> thank you, know, you. That's very kind. <laughs> she's hiding her light, height, light under a bit of a bushel here. But but then you went on. I think the vast majority of I think the pertinent history for our purposes is probably NLX and your 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 rise through the ranks there. Um, or, or would you take it further back? Because you know, the, what's led you professionally to being the person you are today, the chief strategy officer for one of the fastest growing grid storage and, and commercial storage organizations in North America. Yeah. So I actually, uh, in my third year at McKinsey, uh, got to focus on clean tech clients. So I transferred from the New York office out to California and I focused on uh, clean tech clients there, which really got my was really started my career in the energy space. And then when I left McKinsey, I went to go work at Southern California Edison, the utility for Southern California in their strategic projects group. And it's actually at SoCal Edison that I met the now CEO and co-founder of Convergent. We worked together there and we wrote a white paper on energy storage in 2008 together, well before anybody really cared much about energy storage, except for the two of us. I'm not sure how many people read the 100 page white paper that we thought was just... I, I'm afraid I didn't pick it up and read it uh, in preparation for this. My apologies. I, I did read yes. John Cook's thesis um, on disinformation related to climate change before speaking to him, but... I'm sad that it didn't make the cut. A 10-year-old, 100-page technical white paper on energy storage feels like what should always make the cut. <laughs> so yeah, so I did quite a bit of work on clean energy and energy storage when I was at SoCal Edison. Then I went to business school, which is why I now live in Boston. I went to Harvard for my MBA and stayed here to go work for what was at the time Enernoc, the company that was then acquired by NLX. So I joined Enernoc in 2013. And my first role there was I was managing our PJM market. So Enernoc at that time was a largely demand response organization. So focused on helping commercial and industrial customers manage their peaks, which is actually quite relevant to what Convergent does as well. So managing their energy during peak times on the grid, uh, lowering their consumption to avoid, well, either avoid really high prices or actually get paid by the grid to turn off during those moments of peak need. And PJM, which is the uh, grid operator for most of the mid-Atlantic and then sort of west out to Chicago. So New Jersey down to Virginia and then west to Chicago. That whole kind of industrial swath of the U.S. is run by a single grid operator called PJM, which stands for Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, which are only three of the states in PJM now, which is, I'm sure, a point of contention for, you know, Kentucky and the other states that aren't in there. <laughs> Um, but the acronym would get very long. Anyway, so I started there and had the opportunity to take on a number of different roles across Enernoc and NLX during my, I guess, eight years there, uh, which was very fun to be through both the growth period of Enernoc and then being acquired by NLX and globalizing a lot of our business. It was a super fun experience and I learned a ton. Yeah. So that's kind of my, my background in clean energy. Yeah, and I, I'm just going to say that you have a, a profile I recognize, you know, because I do these interesting conversations with PhDs and all these other people, I get done with a lot of, you know, requests to talk to, uh, what's the term I'm going to use? Mediocre white men. <laughs> <laughs> and I have worked with so many 
stupidly impressive women. I, I've worked for women um, and with women who had much better credentials than I did. And they had to credential up in order to be treated as seriously as I did. And I'm not a mediocre white man. That's not what I'm claiming. I, I actually have quite, quite comfortable with that I'm not mediocre, but I know a lot of them. So when I heard, you know, when your, your organization reached out to me and said, did I want to speak to you? I said, oh, heck yeah. <laughs> I get a lot of offers to speak to mediocre white men. So it's wonderful not to have to. <laughs> That's so kind of you to say. That's exciting that I get this opportunity. I'm thrilled. Yeah. Well, at least your organization didn't bait and switch as another one did. I was, they had, the CEO <laughs> was a woman and I was going, cool, charging CEO, female. Perfect. I really want to have this conversation. Would you like to talk to the male CFO? No, you offered me. It was funny. Um, anyway, so that's brought you to here. You had uh, international experience. You had your you know, multilingual, you had um, a strong business background and MBAs are good and bad, but they do provide a, a strong contextual business background for big business. And storage is big business, increasingly big business. And they provide you a context for business strategy that many other things don't. So you're really well positioned. And then your series of, um, oper- your series of roles at NLX really led you to here. But you know, that's, it's interesting because, you know, as you said, a decade ago, in 2013 years ago now, you wrote that white paper. And now you're chief, chief of strategy for a storage company. So, you know, do you keep in touch with your uh, co-author? Is that how that worked? Uh, yeah, actually, we have, we have kept in touch. We both sort of independently ended up moving to the East Coast. So Convergent is based out of New York. And um, Johannes, uh, the CEO of Convergent, his wife is an actress on Broadway. And so they <laughs> live in New York. And somehow as one he does. Yeah, as one does. Exactly. My life is not nearly so glamorous. You know, they, they live in New York. He's got a pretty high pressure job. She, you know, pre COVID was doing eight shows a week. They have a young son. Sometimes I just truly don't understand how they sleep, but you know, m- more power to them for sure. <laughs> so Johannes was living in New York and I was living here in Boston and we'd had a number of conversations over the years, you know, if there was an interesting fit at Convergent or, you know, what kind of made sense because I've always found what Convergent's been doing to be super interesting. And, you know, having written that white paper so long ago, to be frank, I thought that the turning point for energy storage would have been a little earlier than it is, but I'm thrilled that it is at long last here. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. And, you know, all of our conversations kind of ended at the point where he said, so do you want to move to New York? And I said, no, thank you. And that was kind of the end of every conversation. And COVID has really changed the whole landscape of remote work. And so kind of, you know, mid 2020, we were catching up and he said, you know, you don't have to move here anymore. And so the whole conversation really shifted because I, I quite like living in Boston and don't want to live in New York. And so the, the conversation really shifted and it, it felt like a really good opportunity to be part of an organization that's really changing and accelerating renewable integration. And that's such a big piece of solving the climate crisis. And I was just excited to be able to be a, a part of this big change. And I think Convergence doing it right. And I'm that's why I'm here. Yeah, and it, I have to admit, I love I love Boston. I just really hated trying to drive there during the big dig. Um, <laughs> Luckily, that's over. So uh, I, I do remember um, flying in for business meetings, getting in a car, the airport, driving in, and being able to see my motel, the hotel, but not to actually get to it. I finally had to get a taxi driver to 
to, you know, to drive in front of me through the back lots and alleyways that would actually enable me to get to where I was going. Yeah. I ended up on the highway out of town twice that day. Was, oh. I have to say that hasn't gotten better. And GPSs get so confused because of the multiple layers. And so they yeah. don't know what level you're on. Are you underground? Are you on ground? Are you above ground? And so you really have to know. You you truly can't do it yourself. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beast. And as you say, it's, it's so much better than it used to be. But okay, so convergent. So, you know, you've been there for two months, but... I, I'd originally thought this might be a completely unfair question because it's early in a big job where you have to have a lot of complexity in your mind, but you've been having the conversation with Johannes for eight years. So, and you've been paying attention and, you know, so, so tell me the history of Convergent, which I, I think isn't as unfair a question as I, I originally thought it might be. Yeah, sure. So Convergent was really one of the early movers in the energy storage space. Convergent has been around for a decade, which in energy storage years makes it, you know, dinosaur isn't really the right term because that implies that it's not changing with times, but it was one of certainly one of the early adopters in the energy storage space. And one of the Actually, things- I'm going to push back slightly on that because okay. there's, a, there's a big tendency in energy storage to think, you know, batteries and lithium ion batteries and That's stuff totally like that. That's totally fair. But, you know, Pumped hydro storage was originally built in 1907. That's 100% fair. And that's actually in the white paper too. So, you know. (laughs) So come on. (laughs) In terms of of modern companies focused on battery deployment, Convergent is definitely one of the the first movers. So that's a completely fair characterization. And, and, and one of the things that Convergent does that is a little bit unique in the market is that Convergent owns and operates their own assets. So Convergent's not building assets to flip them and Convergent's not interested in just selling hardware and software. Convergent's interested in building the assets for the long term and having the predictable revenue streams that come from that. And so that's part of what makes Convergent really interesting to me is that long history, the clear leadership in the space, Convergent was the first company or at least one of the first companies in Ontario to really put battery storage in place to help commercial and industrial customers manage the GA. Uh, uh, just so you know, I, I'm actually more from Ontario than anywhere else and have deep understanding of how messed up the, the grid was before the GA was brought in in 2005 and how challenging it's become. So I was very interested to look at that. And I think I want to poke at that because that's an interesting business model there. But, you know, and it's actually next on my list of questions. But I think I want to let you finish with the convergent longer story before we return to that. Okay, great. So let's see, where were we? So we were talking about convergent being the one, one of the first organizations in Ontario to help customers manage GA costs. And then you know, Convergent has really expanded its footprint as storage has become economical in a number of different areas now. So we have a number of assets in operation in PJM, in the Northeast, in California, and we are expanding those markets very quickly. I guess I should say expanding our markets quickly beyond the kind of more progressive markets that I think people consider to be, ah, of course there's a battery in Massachusetts. There's no surprise there. But going beyond that because energy storage is really starting to pencil in all of these different markets, either for a commercial and industrial commercial or industrial customer who wants to manage their costs or for a utility that's looking to off, uh, avoid certain transmission upgrades or to integrate renewables. There's a number of different uses now that really make economic sense. And so 
one of the reasons why now felt like the right time aside from COVID and not having to move is really that we are at this inflection point and there's so much growth coming down the path and the opportunity to help shape Convergent into the company that, you know, I know we have the potential to be is, is super fun. Yeah. And, and right now I think you've got uh, 350 million in assets under management. Is that, is that the correct way to assert that number? We've got 350 million in capital committed. So not all of those assets are yet fully built. So I don't know what you want to call under management, you know, but yes, we've got 350 in capital committed. So either built or under construction. This episode of Clean Tech Talk is sponsored by Flow, the maker of the Flow Home X5. The Flow Home X5 is an industry-leading home EV charging solution that features a stylish and durable aluminum casing and allows you to schedule, monitor, and optimize your charging via the Flow mobile app. Flow offers 24-7 customer support to help with installation and troubleshooting. To learn more about the Flow Home, please visit store.flow.com. That's store.flo.com. Yeah, and it's an interesting question because, you know, I was looking through your uh, staffing profile and you've quite reasonably got a lot of fiscal experts in there. And obviously, you know, a lot of your strategy is fiscal. It's interesting that you choose to, you know, assume the capital cost up front and continue with the revenue downstream. Because in a lot of cases, in a lot of places like in Ontario, it's it's uh, strategically valuable for deployments, for tax breaks, for um, certain class of investors to eat the capital cost and then shift the asset to a long-term revenue organization after they've done the, the write-down. But you guys have chosen not to do that. It, it, and do you want to talk about the, oper- the, the way that your fiscal model works that makes it make sense from a tax perspective, if that, if that is of interest or you care about that? I'm not sure I'm the expert to be talking about exactly how the taxes work, to be totally honest. I can talk a little bit about the own and operate model and why we believe that makes long-term sense. If I start talking about tax policy, I'm going to be like 55% right. And the other half is going to be wrong. And I just feel like that will lead to bad outcomes. And and me being nerdy about tax law does not mean my audience is nerdy in (laughs) tax law. So fair, let's move on to the owner operate model and why you choose that. No one wants to be only half right on taxes also. That just feels like a bad place to be. (laughs) So, you know, one of the, one of the things that is strategic in our own and operate model is that not all of the value in storage is appropriately valued today. That's one of our big investment theses is that storage is going to become increasingly valuable over the coming years. And I don't think that's a hugely debatable point given the way that the grid is going. And so when we think about when we build these assets, they have revenue streams that obviously we project and take into account. And that's the kind of predictable revenue stream that I'm talking about. But there is also value that remains in that asset after the 20 year or 25 year cycle is over. We may need to replace some of the parts, obviously, but you've got an interconnection. You've got a customer who's using it. You've got a lot of remaining pieces in place that we believe there will be residual value. And so by flipping the asset, we think that you're really kind of losing out on that value. Well, it's also one of those things. You can be a service company or you can actually have a revenue base um, that persists. And it is a a strategic choice. I've seen this time and again in corporations globally. You know, they, they know how to sell projects. They don't know how to keep the money running when there's no projects. So it is a completely fair choice. So let's talk about, you You mentioned the Ontario thing, we'll get back to that, but where else do you have storage? Uh, and in, what are the categories, you know, in front of meter, behind meter, with mm-hmm. solar? You know, talk about maybe the percentages of your portfolio that are in those three categories and add a category if I missed one. 
Yes. Let me, I have a list. So let me just pull it up to make sure that I don't get it wrong. As you know, I've only been here two months. So sometimes I don't remember off the top of my head. It's more than seven items. You're not going to remember. You're going to miss one anyway. So. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, let me talk first about the kind of, the kind of assets we put in place. So we do standalone storage, battery storage. We do solar plus storage, and we also will do store solar if we believe there to be value in adding storage in the near to medium term. So it may make sense to put a solar asset in place today and then add storage next year, two years out, three years out, because we want to be able to take advantage of having a solar asset that would then benefit from storage. Mm. We work, as I mentioned, with CNI customers to site on-site storage, standalone or solar plus storage to help them manage costs. We also work with utilities to potentially to do non-wires alternatives, NWAs, which basically means you can avoid transmission or distribution upgrades by using storage effectively. We also work with municipalities and co-ops to manage their transmission costs by shifting when they use energy to lower their peak usage um, during coincident peaks. So I'd say those are kind of the biggest buckets. Oh, we also do community solar plus storage. So that's another bucket of the kinds of assets that we build. And then where are our assets? Let me pull up my list here. So I'm going to combine what's built and what's under construction because I don't have a list off the top of my head that's kind of separated out. But obviously we talked about Ontario, New York, California, New Hampshire, Maryland, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Vermont. So basically New England, PJM, Ontario, California. None of that is surprising. Those are the markets that largely value capacity, but that is where we have things. We have broken ground. There is certainly a lot of opportunities that are in development across right now. We have projects in development across 40 States. So there are 40 States in which storage pencils economically. We just haven't broken ground yet. And then of course, Ontario. Yeah. And, and Ontario is a special case. I'm briefly for the sake of people who, um, you know, aren't don't, didn't live, live it and don't know everybody there. Uh, like me, uh, Ontario is a, you know, one of the nuclear jurisdictions. It's, you know, the uh, one of two provinces with nuclear and it's the only one with a lot of nuclear plants. And it also had $20 billion worth of nuclear debt that got hidden away during a restructuring of the utilities and liberalization in the late 90s. When another uh, administration came in in the 2000s, one of the things they did is they brought that debt back and they also started saying we have to actually pay for infrastructure upgrades, which had been deferred. And then they applied that to, they applied a general assessment, uh, general adjustment to utility bills. So people's cost of electricity went up, which annoyed a lot of people. They also were the ones who closed down coal in Ontario uh, and avoided 37 million tons of CO2E every year, yay, uh, that government. And they're also the ones who started the feed-in tariff and brought in lots of wind and solar. So all that stuff is there. They have a lot of clean electricity. They had a lot of clean electricity in Ontario. Time passes, uh, and this is predates Mariko's time. So uh, uh, Johannes dealt with this problem, I'm sure, but Mariko hasn't. <laughs> Uh, the current administration in Ontario, when they came in, the first thing they did is they uh, ripped up 758 renewables contracts and doubled down on nuclear. So now Ontario has uh, not only $20 billion worth of outstanding nuclear debt from the 80s and 90s on their books, they also have to uh, do a lot of build out of flexibility 
around a 55% of annual demand met by nuclear, which is you know about 15% above the base that is reasonable for nuclear and just historically where they've ended up there. Uh, and that means they've got pumped hydro, which Mariko and I were discussing down by Niagara Falls, which they didn't upgrade for. And they also have the requirement, they also have a demand low leveling uh, portion of the business model for, for utility rates. And that's where convergence business case for storage comes in for the larger industrial customers. So, you know, America, how close to you to that are you? And do you want to talk a bit about why it makes sense behind the meter in Ontario specifically? Sure. I can talk about it probably enough to be dangerous. How's that? <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll add in a little bit between us will probably be lethal to somebody, <laughs> but Perfect. So, you know, commercial and industrial customers, you know, particularly those that use a lot of energy can benefit from putting storage behind the meter to basically shave their peak. What does that mean? By shaving your peak, that means that the time of, remind me here, Ontario is a coincident peak system, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when these, these commercial and industrial customers that are using a lot of electricity, if they can limit the amount of electricity that they are using during the hour of the month or the hour of the year when there is the highest electricity need across the grid, they can really limit the amount that they are charged for their share of that electricity. And so what we're helping these customers do is basically you pull electricity from the grid during times that are less high demand, and then use electricity from the battery during the hours that are of highest demand. And that's how they can basically be charged less by the grid of that global adjustment charge that is being shared across all of the utility customers across Ontario. So that's my yeah. short answer. Yeah, and the um, uh, for context, Ontario's electricity rates have gone up, you know, relatively substantially, but they've gone up to about the medium median of electricity rates in North America. Nobody in Ontario really cares that they're the median of North America. What they care about is their electricity rates came up, which is why the current administration got in and shut down all the renewables. Anger uh, was one of his, his big things, unsurprisingly. But the same type of thing applies to demand management strategies for electric car charging, which I did an analysis published on recently. Just to flesh this out a bit more, a very similar model applies to apartment buildings with underground charging for large numbers of electric cars. In British Columbia, where I live, if my condo building had 100% electric cars, we would exceed peak demand every single day and be charged $5.35 for every single kilowatt above our cap, which would you know, triple, quadruple, or quintuple our electricity bill annually. And so this demand management, this behind the meter peak shaving is one of the current spaces where storage has a lot of value in places where there are those peaks. And Convergent saw this. So do you, do you know the history of how you guys happen to see that and end up with your office at 150 King Street West down the street from my old condo? That is unfortunately before my time. So I, know, I cannot I tell you why we decided to set up down the street from you, other than clearly it's a very hot neighborhood to both um, live and work in. It's a great neighborhood. Um, <laughs> if I move back to Toronto, you know, I, I would choose that neighborhood again. My spouse might choose a different one, but we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's an interesting one because the, the point I'll make here is that it was observing 
a specific business context and a business opportunity that isn't obvious or transparent. It's not like someone's going to glance at Ontario and say, I can sell storage generically. They can sell storage behind the meter to large industrial consumers around this business model and model this out. And so it takes a fair amount of regulatory knowledge and utility knowledge today to sell storage. It's, non, it's a non-trivial sales process. There's a, a lot of communication and modeling and clarity that needs to be done for most sales. It's like solar panels are easier, a lot easier to sell than, than solar is um, my percent, or than storage. Is that something that you guys share that it's a, an interesting and complex sale? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think in Ontario, compared to other markets, it was it was almost more it was more clear because you know f- for the largest the largest industrial customers, GA was making up you know fifty percent of their bill, fifty to seventy percent of their bill. So it was pretty. That's a line item that they're going to pay attention to. You know what I mean? But I do think that utility bills in general do tend to be very opaque, and so it's very difficult for customers to have a good understanding of how storage can save them money. And it's certainly to our advantage, a complex sale in that we have a lot of institutional knowledge, having done this for a number of years. And also we hire folks who have deep knowledge of electricity markets, of capacity markets in particular, and the way that not just changing how much electricity you use, but changing when you use that electricity can really impact how much you are going to pay for that electricity if you put particular, and that's why storage makes a lot of sense behind the meter. And so absolutely it is a complex sale. It really is a sale that is a partnership, which means that on the other end of that complex sale, we do have a really strong relationship with our customers. And we do tend to have repeat sales with customers with multiple sites because they it becomes very clear through the process, the expertise that we're bringing to the picture, right? We're not here to just sell you a piece of hardware and go on our merry way. We are here to work with you as your partner to not just put a battery in place where it will save you money, but also to intelligently dispatch that asset over time to enable you to continue to save money over the course of its life. And you know, part of our differentiation, as I mentioned, is that knowledge of when batteries make sense and how big to make it and where to site it and all of those specifics. But on top of that, we also have our proprietary software that we call Peak IQ that uses machine learning to make sure that we are dispatching the asset as intelligently as possible. And so we are making sure that we hit those peaks. You know, in Ontario, we have a history of hitting the you know, at least four of the five summer peaks, we are using predictive analytics to know when they are happening and we will hit them with your battery, with our battery, I suppose, our battery on your site behind your meter. And that's true where we have all of our assets cited is a big part of the value that we're bringing is that intelligent dispatch because without intelligent dispatch, it's just, you know, a big paperweight. It's not doing what you need it to do, which is another big differentiator from solar panels, right? You know, once you put a solar panel in place, it's going to generate electricity. But if you don't dispatch your battery at the right times, there's no point in having it. Well, it's an interesting question. So let's just test the business model a little bit from convergent perspective and, and just say, no, that's proprietary. If I get, you know, into some place that's proprietary, I don't think I will, but you never know. Do you take risk on the cost of electricity in these business deals? In other words, do you guarantee a reduction for your clients? I don't want to get into too much details on the exact contract, 
but I know, sorry, you knew that answer was coming, (laughs) but we do, we do offer shared savings contracts. So in that sense, there is obviously by definition, shared savings, there is risk on both sides as with our customers. There are some customers who are interested in that and there are other customers who are not, but you know, we obviously have a lot of confidence and knowledge in the way that our software works and that we have a history of hitting peaks. The other thing I'll sort of say about the way that our contracts are structured is, you know, in that shared savings model, like we're only making money if you're making money as a customer, right? So we're, we, it's another part of the way that we approach these relationships is they are truly partnerships. The whole sales process takes a long time when we are working together to solve exactly the problem you're trying to solve. And we are best delivering if you're saving money, we're making money, and you trust that we are bringing that intelligence to the picture. It's really not a transactional sale. And that's what makes it hard, but that's also what makes it so sticky. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one as well, because a, I, I would posit that storage requires an eight to 10 year period of fairly guaranteed you know, uh, positioning of the infrastructure and the infrastructure on the client side persisting for that period of time. It's my assumption, if you've got a model that allows you to make money in two years or three years, so you're not at risk with that, please, please let me know. But it, the reason I bring this up is that right now we're going through a tremendous churn in terms of our transition to a low carbon economy, you know, and across, you know, across North America, the where people are using electricity and for how much has changed radically. I was looking at um, vacancy rates in Calgary uh, this morning for, you know, Something I do every one, every few months because I live there as well and I have friends there. But right now they're at they're going to exceed thirty percent vacancy in their downtown core, and even with thirty percent vacancy, that's only ten percent of people are actually going to the offices because uh, they're offices. They're not industrial sites. They're not essential services. It's people who can work from home more than not, and so the um, that facility has changed radically. Uh, Some of the other facilities in Alberta and in Ontario, because they are oil and gas facilities, and some of your clients are Shell and um, Husky, uh, so in this space, are being disrupted because we're achieving peak oil in the next few years. And Canada's, especially um, Western products, are going to be priced out of the market soonest. So it's it's an interesting strategic time to project a long-term service contract. Is, is the positioning of a place around this. So, you know, uh, what's your, conver- your own convergence strategic thinking and risk approach to some of those things? Yeah, I think uh, trying to forecast exactly what's going to happen with COVID in particular is an area that, you know, who knows? I don't even know what's going to happen next week as far as like whether or not my kids are going to go to school. Never mind what's going to happen next year as far as commercial real estate. Um, but I can say that there are a number of macro trends that we are kind of basing our investment thesis on that are not really COVID dependent. Um, and the three, and they're kind of easy to remember because they all start with D, which is decarbonization, decentralization, and digitalization. And those are not convergence specific terms. I've seen them kind of all mm-hmm. over the internet, but they're easy to remember. And those aren't, you know, those aren't really going to be impacted directly by COVID necessarily. And COVID may change some of the timing, but those things are going to continue to happen. And I think what you're really talking about is that decentralization piece, right? Like where are people going to be working in the long term? How do we think about where 
energy centers are going to be? How do we think about how to build a grid to support this evolving landscape of where people are and where they're consuming energy? And so that was kind of happening anyway. There was a lot of, there is a lot of focus by utilities and grid operators to think about decentralizing generation. Obviously, solar panels being on roofs is a big part of that. Electric vehicles is another part of that as we think about that as being part of the storage equation. And so, and community solar is also distributed, not as distributed as rooftop solar, but still distributed. And all of that is happening pre-COVID, will continue to happen. And you know, from a climate change perspective, I can only hope will accelerate um, across North America and across the globe. And storage is really the linchpin of that grid transformation. You can't have a grid that is decarbonizing, decentralizing without better storage of those electrons. And when I think about how you're going to use that, it's the digitalization part, right? It's not just storage that needs to be intelligently dispatched. It's the entire grid that needs to be more intelligently utilized because the old world of generation sits in one place, electrons move from generation to consumption in the same way every day, where the people go to the same places and use electricity in the same way every day is not the future that we're looking at. And so having the flexibility that the grid needs in order to meet that, you know, storage is, is vital to making that happen. Yeah, and it's um, some of my thinking is uh, related to specific industrial processes, which are going to suddenly see collapsing markets, right? And so, you know, some, you know, you've got a, a couple of clients in oil and gas um, who are good long-term clients, but it's the ener- that energy part of the market is changing radically and rapidly. So it's an interesting question, right? Um, and they are decarbonizing their processes, which is advantageous and beneficial, but their fundamental offering is, you know, challenging. Uh, obviously, yeah. from a client perspective, you know, so it's it's an interesting question to see how long some of these things play, and I'm sure you have some really interesting discussions about that that I won't ask you about. Um, I will but- say one thing, which, without you know, projecting on the future of oil and gas, or certainly the economic future of any of our clients, I will say that economic pressure means that saving money on your electricity bill matters matters more. Mm-hmm. One of the things, you know, having been in this industry for a decade, not specifically at Convergent, but one of the things that we've always struggled with as a company, as companies that are helping customers save money on their electricity bill is sometimes they don't care about saving money on their electricity bill. But when the belt needs to be tightened, being able to save money on your electricity bill suddenly makes a lot of sense. And particularly when Convergent is interested in owning and operating the asset, is interested in putting in that upfront investment, that starts to be a compelling thing to do when maybe before you were more interested in, you know, growth and, and investing in your business in other ways. So to yeah, a certain I, extent, those that, that can help us. Yeah. I've spent a, a fair num- number of time talking to, you know, companies that are selling uh, efficiency services or energy services. Um, the one I'm thinking of is um, a California oriented uh, commercial solar company. They do a cool thing. They take, um, you know, plug in an address and their machine learning algorithm grabs a high resolution Google photo of the roof of the building and then lays out solar panels and then their algorithms then kick in and they price the cost of solar for 15 or price the cost of electricity for 15 years. And it takes about 10 seconds. Kind of cool. But the problem they had was that they didn't have any insight about who was in the building and what their market stance would be. And so when I was speaking to the vice president of marketing there a couple of years ago, I said, well, you're, you're, you're scattershotting a bunch of this stuff. 
but you have to go after the ones that are in cost containment mode, not the ones that are in growth mode. Like your example business on your website is a high margin electronics manufacturer who is in an expansion mode that increased the revenue by 250 million year over year. They're not going to care about rooftop solar. You're not going to be able to find someone sufficiently high up to make that sale. And I think that's what you're trying to say is there's certainly clients in businesses that are in a cost cutting mode or an efficiency mode who are going to persist for long enough for a business relationship like yours to make a tremendous amount of sense. And they're good clients. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, not to say that everybody is a great client and that, you know, everything is perfect for conversion. Oh, but it is, of course, we're doing excellent. Oh, yes. but, <laughs> but even the companies that are in growth mode, because decarbonization is such a focus now for the corporates, we're seeing interest from the sea level. And that's another thing that has really shifted in the last couple of years where, you know, it used to kind of be like, show me the money. If it pencils, then maybe we'll think about it if it's more interesting than other investments that we could make. But now companies are so interested in decarbonizing and if they can't rely on their utility or their energy supplier to provide them with renewable energy, or even if they can, and they can do it more effectively or take more control of it themselves by using an energy storage asset, we're seeing a lot of strategic interest from these companies, you know, at the top for doing that for decarbonization reasons. And hey, if it doesn't cost me any money or even saves me money, even better. Well, certainly the, uh, you know, the ESG focus of BlackRock and other major investment firms has radically transformed, you know, how people consider environmental aspects um you know and so there are now board positions uh, in most major companies that are focused on the esg chunks i had a, a really great conversation a couple of weeks ago uh, related to one of the firms i'm assisting with the new world development corporation uh, a hong kong developer with 10 billion in assets in hong kong and the uh, pearl river delta and, and they run a competition every year to draw bring on board new vendors who that are around the united nations sustainability goals and so that's why I was talking because I'm, I'm engaged with a storage company and startup and redox flow battery technologies. And so, you know, it's just the world is transforming rapidly. And that's one of the pressures. So it, it is very interesting. But, you know, that some of that becomes, you know, the, the solar people, one of their big clients was REI, who have a vested interest in being green. And I was talking to a, you know, a green mortuary owner in um, central Canada who I, I looked at, uh, you know, if Manitoba is an interesting market as well because they have cheap electricity and it's 1.2, uh, I think if I've got the numbers right, 1.2 grams of CO2e per kilowatt hour because it's all hydro and it's all old hydro. So it's, you know, done all that stuff. So in his case, there is zero value from putting solar panels on his roof, except he's probably going to do it so people would know. <laughs> signaling, the signaling aspect. It was fascinating conversations that we get to have around these things. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.